And we're going to read from chapter 1, the first 11 verses. You find the book of Ecclesiastes besides the book of, beside the book of Proverbs, and that's because both are books of wisdom. Uh, Proverbs is wisdom uh, for the youth, and Ecclesiastes is wisdom for the aged. I find myself more and more in the latter category. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear is full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. We'll pause here in our reading of God's Word to sing as a psalm of preparation to the Word preached from Psalm 90, the stanzas 7 and 8. I invite you to turn back with me to Ecclesiastes, now to the third chapter, uh, giving attention there to the first 15 uh, verses. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and Find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. 
I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before. And God will call the past uh, to account. The word of our God, and may he bless it in our hearing uh, this afternoon. Uh, Beloved in Christ our Lord, I suppose that for any number of you, uh, the passage we just read together is a familiar passage, made all the more familiar to people of a certain age by that band of so long ago. As I recall, they were the birds, and the song was something like, turn, turn, turn. There's a time for everything. There's a time to be born, and there's a time to die. And in between those two times that God appoints for each and every person, there is a whole lot of other times that God appoints. And we're here at the beginning of a new year. We find ourselves looking back at an old year, looking ahead to a new year. And, of course, we we wonder, you know, What times will he appoint for me uh, this year? What times will he appoint for us uh, this year? And at another level, we have this awareness, this sense that, by and large, the times are always going to be the same. That what we did last year is, by and large, what we will do this year. The things we experienced last year will be the things we experience this year. There'll always be some variation. But when we read through this poem about a time for this and a time for that, we get a sense of kind of the full experience of life, both in terms of activity, that's what most of these contrasting pairs are about, as well as emotion. And you saw that there was some contrasting emotion there as well. You are busy with whatever time God appoints for you, with whatever thing God appoints for you, because that's what God has given you uh, to do. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 10, I have seen the burden God has laid on men. That word burden there uh, has to do with um, the living of life, the things God gives us to do. Other translations, I have seen the business with which God has given people to be busy with. And so that's, that's our life. We have uh, this moment of birth, we have this moment of death, and we have all of these other moments in between. And as you are busy with uh, your appointed times, God is busy making, says the preacher, everything beautiful in its time. It raises the question, what what does that mean that God is making everything beautiful in its time? Well, it's, it's not that everything is pleasing. Because as we look through this contrasting list of these opposing activities and emotions, not all of them are beautiful in the sense of, of pleasing. Not all of them are favorable. Half of them are unfavorable. 
Yet when the preacher says that God has made everything beautiful in its time, what he's saying is that every moment, everything, every matter that happens under heaven happens at the time that God has appointed for it. And so it's beautiful in the sense that it fits exactly where God has intended it to fit. Our sovereign God has an eternal design established before time, which he's working out in time, and which he works out through these appointed times, so that these times which we read about are not random times. They are not there in our lives and in our experiences as a result of fate or of chance. No, these are his times. From the moment of our birth to the moment of our death, everything in between, including war and peace, all are his times, all of the time. And as human beings, we would love to be able to figure out what God is doing in all of these appointed times that take place in our lives personally, in our lives collectively, in the world we live in. But the preacher says we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We cannot figure out how all of these points in time, how all of these experiences, these matters, fit together. It is true that God has put eternity into our hearts, which is to say that God has given to human beings something he gave to none of the other creatures, and that is a sense of past and future together with the present. But as much as God has given us a sense of past and future, we are creatures who live only in the present. We have a sense of eternity, but we live in time, defined by here and now. But God is eternal. God inhabits past, present, and future all at the same time. And God has worked out the beginning to the end. Now, if you fail to see that, if you fail to to see this sovereign, eternal God who's worked out everything from the beginning to the end, you're going to look at the rhythm of appointed times and all you will see is an endless cycle, a circle. And as you get older, and that's what I mean about Proverbs being, or Ecclesiastes being wisdom for the aged, as you get older, the more you're inclined to look at the circles of life and go, what is the sense of it all? What is the point of it all? It's just a cycle of contrasting, opposing activities with no net gains involved. I mean, just just stop and think about it. A time to be born and a time to die. Your birth is canceled out by your death. A time to plant and a time to uproot. Again, The plant that was planted is now uprooted. And the net gain is zero. You build something one day, and it seems like the next day you're tearing down that same thing. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. You know, maybe you maybe you built your own house years ago, and then then you find yourself ripping out most of what you built. And you stop and you scratch your head, go, hold on here. Like, the net is zero now. 
You see, it, it, as we look at these circles, these cycles, nothing lasts. Nothing changes. You know, the question that is asked at verse 9 is asked in light of the poem, what does the worker gain from his toil? It's a question that begins the book. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 3. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Preacher wants to know about profits. Gains from work. And the preacher in chapter 1, and we read it, he observes the rhythms of nature, the cycle of nature. You've got these waters that, you know, are always seemingly going back to the same place and it's starting over again. The sun goes back to the same place, starts over again. Preacher says nothing new ever emerges. Nothing new under the sun. He says even the future is going to disappear into the sands of time. And so we're, we're pondering this question. As you cycle through another year, you're pondering the question, well, where's the gain? What's the profit? But what you need to see is that God is busy at work even as you are busy with the times he has appointed for you. And when you see that God is busy at work even as you are busy at work, you're going to be able to draw some beautiful conclusions from the fact that there is a time for every matter under heaven. A season for every Activity. And there's two uh, conclusions that God shows uh, you and I this afternoon. And I'm going to particularly then zero in beginning at the 12th verse. And you'll notice that verse 12 begins with the words, I know. And so does then also verse 14, I know. These are concluding uh, statements that the preacher makes on the basis of what he has observed. So I think I have it in the liturgy sheet for you. God shows you what conclusions to draw from the fact that there is a time for every matter under heaven. The first conclusion, you are to receive God's gift of enjoying life. And the second conclusion is that you are to react to God's work by reverencing Him. You are to receive God's gift of enjoying life and you are to react to God's work by reverencing him. So the preacher says there in verse 12, I know. It's a, it's a statement of faith. It's a confession of faith. I know. He's previously see, said, I have seen, verse 10. I have seen. I've made observations. Now he says, I know. I know, he says, that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. Well, it's a beautiful confession of faith here that uh, the preacher makes. I know that there's nothing better for men. I think it's easy when you get into wisdom literature to forget uh, that we don't always speak here in absolute terms, but we speak in, in relative terms. And this is one of those moments where you have to pay attention to context. Why is he saying there's nothing better than this? 
It's not an absolute statement, like this is the absolute best. But he's saying, look, we need to take into account a couple of things, and then we're going to end up at this, I know there's nothing better than. What are we going to take into account? We're going to take into account that the worker has no gain from his toil. We're also going to take into account that while God has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom, they cannot understand, they cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. In light of these two things, one, that there's no gain from the toil, and two, that despite eternity being in our hearts, we cannot figure out beginning to end, and what God is doing, in that context, there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live. Then goes on to describe that further, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. And then the key words, this is the gift of God. This is the gift of God. We've just come through a a season of gift giving. And uh, I I hope somebody gave you a gift. Uh, And I I I hope you enjoyed your gift. I hope you're still enjoying your gift. Um, sometimes we get gifts and uh, we say thank you and then we re-gift them because uh, we don't really want them or we just put them in a cupboard because we have no use for them and we appreciate the thought but the gift itself doesn't mean much to us. Or, you know, I think especially when you're younger, you get really excited about a gift and two weeks after Christmas it's kind of in the closet as well because you're bored with your gift. It used to excite you and it no longer excites you. This, says the preacher, is the gift of God. And as you look back on 2022, the question I would have you reflect on is, did you use the gift of God that the preacher highlights for us here in our text? And as you look forward to this new year, does the opportunity to to embrace this gift all over fill you with a sense of excitement? That you're looking forward to, once again, exploring this gift of God. It's easy when you go through the, the poem and these opposing activities and emotions, the one which tends to cancel out the other. It's easy to look at this and, and draw a conclusion that God just intends you to, to be a slave, to being busy to the times that he appoints for you. I'm either going to do this, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do this. God doesn't intend you to be a slave to um, all of these matters with which Uh, He gives to you to be busy with. Uh, Indeed, sometimes, and that's why the NIV translates as as burden, I've seen the burden God. Sometimes it is a burden. But God doesn't intend you to be a slave to these things, nor does God intend for you to frustrate yourself as you are spending your days trying to figure out what God is up to in your life or God is up to in the lives of others or what God is up to in this world. Uh, You cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. But as you're living your life, 
as you're being sensitive to the time that God has appointed for this thing or that thing, and you have to learn to be sensitive so that you mourn when you're supposed to mourn and you laugh when you're supposed to laugh. God intends that amongst all of these things, you would be happy. And you would do good. God intends for you to be happy. God intends for you to do good. God intends for you to eat and to drink and to find satisfaction in in all of your toil, in all of your work. Now, if you look back on 2022 with a with a sense of pessimism. I wonder if you took the time last year to enjoy life, to be happy, uh, to be joyful. I wonder if you took the time to, to do good. I think here especially of doing good for other people. I wonder if you took the time to take pleasure in Uh, your work, your toil, whatever it is that God has given you to do. And I ask these reflective questions because, well, when you switch from one year to the next, it's always good to reflect a little bit on what was in light of what will be. And as you turn the page from one year to the next, maybe it's an opportunity for you uh, to make a change in terms of how you live your life, what your outlook on life is, but particularly, maybe you need to renew your appreciation for the gift that God gives uh, to you. Maybe you've forgotten the gift, forgotten to be happy, forgotten to do good, forgotten to take pleasure, find satisfaction in all of your toil. God has not only given you, you know, this burden, this business to be busy with, but beside that, God has given you this gift. And so I encourage you to embrace and receive and enjoy that gift in this coming year. But not only does God give you a gift amid your work, but he intends for you to react to his work. And that brings us to our second I know in our passage. Verse 14, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. What does it mean to say, I know that everything God does will endure forever? The answer comes in the words that follow. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. Earlier in verse 11, you know, the preacher had made that statement about human beings being unable to fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And because we cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end, we uh, can wonder if, if, if there's a certainty to all that's happening around us. We can maybe even sometimes wonder if God is just kind of winging it. 
that he's sort of making up things as he goes, making adjustments you know, as necessary. That this is like one of those, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you build a home for someone or doing a renovation uh, for someone, and they're always, they're always changing um, the plans. You know, the first set of blueprints becomes the second set of blueprints, becomes the third and the fourth and the fifth. And, and we have to remember that with God, he's still working off the original set of blueprints. That everything God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. There's no tweaks. There's no changes to the projects. Everything from the beginning to the end has been appointed from before the beginning by our eternal sovereign God. We look at these things, the appointed seasons, and, and as I said, we only tend to see the repeating circles or cycles. But God shows us here, in that descriptive statement, beginning to end, that he is always moving things forward towards the end. Yes, your life and mine is largely this. As I said, in many ways, next year is going to look a whole lot like last year. A few changes here or there, but by and large, it's going to all look the same. It's going to be filled with similar activities. It's going to be filled with similar emotions, each having its own time. But, but when we step back, with the help of the preacher, and we're seeking to become wise, so we're listening. When we step back, we see that in all of these things, God's always at work. And he's advancing time forward towards the end. You know, we've just come through this season of remembering the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know if it's ever struck you that every year you do the same thing at Christmas. And I don't just mean in terms of the gifts. I mean also in terms of celebrating Christ. Every year we gather on Christmas Day and we sing the same songs. And we read the same gospel passage. Matter of fact, I decided like 15 years ago that every Christmas I'm just going to read Luke chapter 2 no matter what. And I'll preach something from Luke 2 no matter what because you know what? People seemingly are okay with this, this repetition of things. Why is it that we're okay with the same songs and the same gospel passage every year? Because we know there's significance to that same story we celebrate. And the significance is captured by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4.4 when he says that Christ was born when the fullness of time had come. From eternity. From the beginning. God had been working towards this point in time. From eternity, he had appointed his son to be born of a virgin named Mary in a little town called Bethlehem. And he had appointed a time some 30 years later for that son to die. And so in the church, 
We're leaving behind Christmas, and we're actually on a journey towards Good Friday. And we're going to gather together, and we're going to sing the same songs we sang last Good Friday, and we're going to read the same passages from the Gospels about His suffering and His crucifixion. And we're going to reflect on the reality that there is a time to be born and a time to die and that Jesus Christ was part of that cycle of our lives. But then we're going to hit the jackpot. And we're going to go to Easter morning. And the thing we love about Easter, the thing we love about Sundays, is this. Something new emerges under the sun. There's not only a time to be born and a time to die, but there's a time to be raised. And there's no contrasting statement. There's no opposing activity. Just a time to be raised. Christ is risen. Never to die again. And it is this Christ, this risen Christ, who stands at the center of this grand thing that God calls the beginning to the end. Christ stands there, the risen Christ, at the center. And He reaches back into eternity past, and He reaches forward into eternity future. Without Him, the world was not made, and without Him, the world will not be restored unto its full glory. And if death was simply the end of these cycles, then in the words that used to be uttered by a couple of guys on Saturday Night Live, party on Wayne, party on Garth, if, if death is the end, if the cycles are just cycles, then just party on, folks. Squeeze every possible last moment of pleasure out of this life before it all goes poof. But Christ's resurrection tells you that death is not the end. It tells you that God is at work and that His work endures forever. I know, says the preacher, that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. So that men will revere Him so that men will revere Him. I, I love that word, revere. We have, a, we have a challenge sometimes trying to express um, this reaction to the work of God that the Bible sometimes translates as fear, other times as reverence, other times as awe, Uh, But I think the word revered is a a pretty good job here. To revere is this moment of complex emotion because there's happiness and there's joy and it's intersecting with with a touch of fear, with a sense of of smallness and insignificance in the face of greatness and vastness. So to revere God, 
is to experience a feeling of awe at him and at his work that endures forever. To reverence God is to accept your place in this world that he has made, knowing that you are not in control of the times, knowing that you cannot fully understand the times. If you could control the times and if you could uh, fully understand the times, you would be God and he would not be necessary. But you are not and he is. He is great and you are small. He is independent. You are dependent. He is eternal. You are finite. And so you are to reverence him. And when you take those inner realities together, and we're trying to talk about feelings and thoughts, you know, that feeling of, of awe, that knowledge, that thought of smallness next to his greatness and his vastness. When you take those inner emotive thought world realities and you bring them into the realm of action, then the Bible teaches you that to fear God, to reverence God, is to submit your lives to him in joyful obedience. As you may know, the preacher comes to his grand conclusion at the end of chapter 12. And this is what he says in verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. As we head into 2023, let us not fail to reverence our God, accepting our place in his world, and submitting to him in joyful obedience. Let us be mindful that the failure of the children of man to fear before God is first and foremost a failure of knowing our proper place in his world. We easily will act as though we are in charge we live as if we are in control of the times and as if we understand the times. We live as though we are independent. We live as though our place was above the sun rather than underneath the sun. But the older I get, the more I realize the wisdom of the preacher that such a way of living is a hopeless endeavor. And more and more, we just end up asking the question, what does the worker gain from his toil? And the answer is nothing. Closing verse, whatever, whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before. That's just another way of saying what he said back in chapter 1. There's nothing new under the sun. But then he says something very intriguing. He says, and God will call the past to account. And there's a little footnote in my Bible, and the print gets even smaller. It says, or God calls back the past. Quite literally, it says that God seeks the things that have been driven away. Well, what does this mean? God will call the past to account. God calls back the past. God seeks the things that have been driven. What does that mean? 
I believe what it means is that God reaches back into the past and he finds those things that we are quite sure were buried in the sands of time. And that ought to be an encouragement for you as you leave behind another year. And it ought to be encouragement to you, particularly as you may be an older person who leaves behind another year, because this is not the first time you've left behind a year. Some of you have a whole lot of years that you've left behind. And I don't know if you ever think about these things, but we have that expression, don't we? Buried under the sands of time. Gone. Forgotten. All those years where you were busy with the things that God gave you to do. And you look at life under the sun and you say, what does the worker gain from his toil? And you, you answer nothing. And then you look above the sun and you see there is God and he's calling the past to account. There is God and he's calling back the past. There is God and he's seeking the things that have been driven away. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 towards the end, that great passage on the resurrection, he says, in the Lord your labor, your work is not in vain. Why is your work in the Lord not in vain? Because God is going to seek out the past things and he's going to bring them back at the coming of Christ. He's going to seek out the business that he has given you to be busy with. I mean, Paul says this somewhere else, doesn't he? Where he talks about his work you know, being tested before the Lord. The good things will they'll last and the bad things they won't. It's this beautiful picture of God reaching back into the past. And here, here's the most encouraging thing that I will leave you with this day is that not only does God reach back into the past and grab the things that you were busy with, but God reaches back into the past and he grabs you. Because here's the reality. That save Jesus coming back, you are going to be part of the past. And quite soon. The world will forget you. The world will forget your tomb. And yet God will find you. God will seek you out. He will call you back from the past into that glorious presence of Christ. And like Christ in his resurrection, there is appointed for the Christian a time to rise and never die. You will live with God, and like God, you will inhabit past, present, and future simultaneously. That is his work that endures forever, and he has done it that you might reverence him. And until that day comes when he calls the past to account, May you, brothers and sisters, know that there is nothing better than to be happy and to do good while you live and that you might eat and drink and find satisfaction in all of your toil for this is the gift of God. Amen.
Let's respond to the proclamation of God's word uh, by singing uh, together the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, the uh,